reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead. Thank you, James. Good morning. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the elders here, and I'm pleased to be able to bring the word of God to you. Um, Let's pray. Father, I admit that I am anxious about this sermon on anxiety. So Lord, I pray that you would calm my heart, that you would help me to, to hold this sermon with an open hand, that you would speak through me by the power of your Holy Spirit, that it would not be my words, but your words that would minister to your people and your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me. One of the favorite, one of my favorite Christmas traditions in my family is to watch a Charlie Brown Christmas. In this classic, Charles Schultz, the artist, attempts to juxtapose the true meaning of Christmas against its increasing commercialization. Schultz's genius is not. Um, lies not in his particularly clever plot lines, rather in his uncanny ability to portray the various conditions of the human heart through its characters. One fascinating character is Linus Van Pelt. He is the timid, the anxious, the intelligent, but humble younger brother of Lucy. If you know the comic strip, Linus always walks around with a security blanket, symbolizing the treasures that he holds dear. Linus clutches this blanket as if his dear life depended upon it. In fact, in earlier comic strips, Linus's relationship to his blanket was one of intense, intense emotional attachment to the point of manifesting physical symptoms if he were deprived of it, even for a little bit. 
And while other characters often tease and try in vain to take away this blanket, they don't have much success. A Charlie Brown Christmas is no different. In fact, in the, in the storyline, as Charlie Brown tries to put on this Christmas play, and the rest of the characters attempt um, to take away Linus's security blanket, they do so to no avail. But there's an exception. In a very poignant scene, Charlie asks Linus, what is the true meaning of Christmas? And Linus recites from Luke 2, verses 8 through 14. And if you watch the film carefully, just as he reads the words, Fear not! He drops his blanket and raises both hands as he continues, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And that, in a nutshell, brothers and sisters, is my sermon. In Jesus, you too can learn to trust God with your anxieties. My aim this morning is twofold. First, I want to examine the topic of anxiety in a bit more detail than we would normally. This is not a biblical theological sermon. It's not a systematic sermon. It's not an exegetical sermon. It's actually it's going to be a very detailed, topical sermon on anxiety. David Pallison cautions, when you counsel in great and good generalities, people will nod, but they will rarely change. Ministry needs to know the big picture, but it really gets involved in the rush hour traffic. Change takes place in the watershed moments and decisive incidents of everyday life. And so this morning, I want to take you through the rush hour traffic. And because this is a one-off sermon, we actually have the luxury to do this. I know we'll be preaching the same passage in April, uh, and we'll be doing that exegetically. And so there is some freedom to dive deeper into some of the more practical aspects this morning. My second aim is this. I want to exhort you to examine the claims of Jesus and its application to anxiety more carefully. You know, sometimes well-meaning Christians uh, do more harm by spitting platitudes when we try to help those who are anxious. Sort of the Christian equivalent of, here, take two verses and call me in the morning. And so by examining this in a little bit more detail, I think we'll discover that Jesus offers much more than platitudes. He offers us real hope that is multidimensional, that is colorful, and that comes with the authority and the power to change in the Holy Spirit. My outline this morning is threefold. One, we're going to look at the experience of anxiety. What is anxiety? What does anxiety look like? Number two, we'll look at the root of anxiety. And as we look at the root, we'll, we'll find the strange correlation between hope and fear. And third, we'll look at anxiety in the gospel. How do we help ourselves and how do we walk alongside others to help them in their anxiety? 
You ready? So let's dive in. First, the experience of anxiety. What are you anxious about this morning? What are you anxious about this morning? Let's run with Powelson's metaphor just for a little bit here of rush hour traffic. You're stuck anyway. Why not slow down and look around? You know, in Vancouver, you might see a Ferrari to the right and (laughs) a couple of Honda Civics to the left. There's much to appreciate and observe. Take pulse of your concerns. Look in detail. What are your anxious thoughts? Let me ask it another way. What are the normal concerns of your life that may have gone rogue? You see, the road out of anxiety isn't that God miraculously clears away the rush hour traffic. This isn't the almighty Google Maps where that A wonderful voice directs us through an alternate route. Rather, it is the faithful, grace-filled journey through the traffic. So listen in. Think through as I list off some of these common concerns. What will I eat? What will I drink? Where am I going to find my next meal? What will I wear? This, by the way, is a big one for my daughter. Many a morning, I find her paralyzed in front of the closet, in a panic, indecisive, yelling to mommy, I don't know what to wear. For some, these basic desires are a bit more amplified, perhaps with an addictive element. Where will I find my next drink? Where am I going to find my next fix? How will I satisfy these sexual urges? For some, it's health concerns. What will happen to my body? Will this sickness overcome me? What happens if it does? Will our child be okay? Will my child learn to be like normal kids? Or will he be a special needs kid? Will I have enough time to finish what I need to do? What if I don't finish this sermon on time? Trust me, I went through that yesterday. What will this next year look like? Will I be able to work? Will I be able to provide for my family? You know, it's really cool and hip to talk about the Enneagram nowadays. Heather and Brant wanted me to talk about this. So while I have some opinions on this, which I'll share later, let me indulge that for a second. See if any of these resonate with you. Type 1s, am I doing the right things? What if I'm not? Will I be condemned? For you type 2s, am I loved? Do Do people really love me? Do they really appreciate the things that I do for them? Do I mean as much to them as they do to me? What if they don't and they're just faking it? Type threes, do the things I do have any significance? What if what I'm doing turns out to be all for naught? What if they discover that I'm really an imposter? Am I defective? Am I attractive? 
What if people see the deep flaws in my personality? Or maybe if you're younger, what if they see the giant zit that I woke up with this morning? Do I have a right view of reality? You know, so many of my friends seem to be so wrong-headed. But what if I'm the one that's crazy? What if the conspiracists are right? Is my understanding of things correct? Have I analyzed things correctly? Have, are my judgments correct? Some of the skeptics in the room might say, have I placed the loyalties, my loyalties, in the right place? Who can I really trust? Am I secure? What if I'm excluded? What if I'm missing out? You know, the fear of missing out, right? Hashtag FOMO or something like that. Why am I not happy? What's wrong with me? Why do I feel so deprived? For the leaders in the room, what if people fail me? What if things are outside of my control? What if those that I lead fail? What will all the people think of me when they see my weaknesses? Am I weak? Some of us are peacemakers. Will I be able to keep the peace? What if I can't keep the peace? What if things disintegrate? What if I'm not accepting of others? You know, some of these questions I just listed, listed off are trivial. They seem trivial. Some promise more thought. And then there are those. Then there are those that start these cycles of thought. They bombard us in parallel. We perceive them as dangerous. They overwhelm us. They poke at our fears. Satan uses them to gain a foothold. They seem threatening. We suffer. Even how we ask the question in our own minds betrays our attitude toward it. Consider how I started some questions with what will or do I and others with what if. And in our fear and worry, we begin to respond in anxious ways. This is something I know a little too well. Our heart rate goes up. We can feel the adrenaline pumping. We feel it to the tips of our fingers. There are physiological symptoms. We engage in unhealthy and compulsive habits. Some of us have panic attacks. We begin our routines to cope. We try to manage the anxiety. Sometimes it's the other way around. It seems the other way around anyway. Isn't it funny how the actions that we take as a result of anxiety can bring on more anxiety? We may feel guilty for how we've engaged in something to cope with our anxieties, maybe a little too much, and then we start feeling anxious about that. And before long, we feel very, very stuck. Fear not. Cast all our anxieties on Him. That feels like and it hears like Bob Newhart's famous counseling sketch about a woman with the fear of being, of being buried alive in a box where his advice was merely, stop it, 
If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it later for some comic relief. And yet, we want to be free of our anxiety. We want to be free of our anxiety. Concerned, yes. Anxious, no. John Piper writes in his book, Future Grace, Anxiety is a condition of the heart that gives rise to many other sinful states of mind. Then he goes on to list some of these. So if anxiety could be conquered, a mortal blow would be struck to many other sins. So that's kind of the experience of anxiety, at least as much as I could explain in 10 minutes. So what is the root of anxiety? And how do we conquer it? Point two. What is the root of anxiety? And how do we conquer it? Jesus actually gives us a very big clue in verse 30 about what the root of anxiety is. He says this, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? O you of little faith. In other words, the root of anxiety is inadequate faith in our Father's future provision or future grace. Piper continues, he says, as unbelief gets the upper hand in our hearts, one of the effects is anxiety. The root cause of anxiety is a failure to trust all that God has promised to be for us. In Jesus. That's all great and good, but how specifically does this apply to your heart? How specifically does this apply when we are suffering in anxiety? What is the area of unbelief for you? And surprisingly, surprisingly, this is actually where our anxiety can help. This is where our anxiety can help. The key lies in looking behind the anxiety, behind the circumstances that has attached itself to the circumstances that, is, that the anxiety has attached itself to and identifying the fears. Let me say that again. The key lies in looking behind the anxiety, behind the circumstances that that anxiety has attached itself to and identifying the fears that are behind it. And this is where what seems trivial to one, let's say my daughter standing in front of the closet, paralyzed, wondering what to wear, or even Linus's security blanket. This is where what seems trivial to one can compare at the same level to something with apparently much greater consequences. Let's say the purchase of a $10.5 million building, <laughs> or 
the shouldering the pastoral responsibilities of this church. Because it is not, it is not the circumstances that drive the degree of anxiety. Rather, it is the root fears and desires in the human heart that do. Did you get that? From a biblical perspective, anxiety is a form of, it's an emotional outworking of fear. When we are anxious about something, we are actually fearful of it. The question behind anxiety is this. What do I fear will be taken away if the circumstances go awry? What do I fear will be taken away if the circumstances go awry? Phrase another way is this. What is it that I'm actually wanting that seems to be causing this anxiety? When we view it this way, we actually gain a remarkable perspective on how hope and fear interrelate. If I could give you an illustration, they're actually the same, they're actually the same coin. It's two sides of the same coin. Hope. Hope is desiring or valuing something that I either have or am likely to get. Okay, so if this is the coin, hope is valuing or desiring something that I'm likely to get. And fear is when something I desire is being threatened. It, it might be taken away. What you hope and fear for is a display of your greatest desire. What you hope and fear for is a display of your greatest desire. Sometimes those desires are actually rightful things that have simply gone amok. For example, no one disputes that we need to eat, that we need to drink, we need to be loved. We need to be valued. We need to feel that our work is significant. God created us to be like that. But those desires become inordinate. They become disordered when we close our fist around them. Many of you know that I'm uh, studying to be and trained as a biblical counselor. And one of my, one of my counseling profs loves to use this analogy. He says this, are we holding our desires, those things that we hope for, those things that we fear we will lose, are we holding them with an open hand? Will we allow God to either grant them to us or take them away? Will we allow God to either grant them to us or take them away? Or do we, do we close our fists around them? And by so doing, shake our fist at God. In other words, have the desires of our heart. Have those things that we hope and fear for, have they grown feet and ascended the throne and taken the place where Christ needs to be? 
our anxiety, this emotional, physiological reaction to our hearts, can be a remarkable indicator to those desires in our hearts that have become inordinate. I want to tease this out just a little bit more. We can actually see that anxiety expresses itself dynamically. Obviously, it's an emotional element. There's an emotional element to it. But did you know that it also has a cognitive and a volitional element as well? Consider what your anxiety is actually saying about what you believe, about your life, about who you are, about your circumstances, and most importantly, about God. Where is the lie that Satan so likes to use in our anxiety? Where is the lie in those thoughts? Consider how your actions, you know, the worrying, the fretting about, is actually a betrayal of competing treasures and ultimately an attempt to have a greater sense of control by mulling over it and considering it. I know this dynamic a little too well. I mull over and think about and think about and think about some more in an attempt to control circumstances that I really can't control. The psalmist says in Psalm 127, 1-2 that it's all in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor in labor, um, sorry, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. In our text this morning, Jesus speaks of the futility of worrying. In verse 27, he says this, Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? In fact, it might shorten it. Which brings us to our third point, anxiety in the gospel. So how do we conquer anxiety? Well, anxiety is only solved when we treasure, that is, we put our hope and our fear in, the things that cannot be taken away instead of the things that can. Let me say that again. Anxiety is only solved when we treasure the things that cannot be taken away instead of the things that can. And who can provide the things that cannot be taken away? And everybody said, Jesus. The answer, of course, is Jesus. Verse 33 says this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, that doesn't mean that we must try on our own strength to reach the kingdom of God. Jesus came to earth to inaugurate the kingdom and to give us his righteousness. He gave you eternal life. 
These are things that he has started that cannot be taken away. So treasure those things. Treasure the things that cannot be taken away by believing in and putting your trust in Jesus. And so with that in mind, let us look carefully at the passage again. I'm actually going to start a few verses before just to give you a bit more context. Starting from verse 19, he says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then on to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, so, because of these things, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Let's just stop for a second there in verse 26. Think about this. If God sustains your life, is he, if he's promised to uphold the universe by the, by the word of his power, if he promises you to give you his life, to give you life, to give you your next breath, that he sustains you, something infinitely more complex than food and clothing, which he, by the way, also created, will he not take care of providing these things for you as you responsibly search for them? Genesis one twenty-seven says this, that it tells us that all creation, all creation, uh, sorry, of all creation, God made us to be in his image. And God chose us to be in relationship with him. Romans 8.32 says this. It reminds us of our value if we have trust in him. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's continue reading verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they will grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which day is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do you notice how God prioritizes us? How God prioritizes his people, those whom he has chosen 
and loved. Therefore, he says in verse 32, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. One commentator says this, worry is practical atheism and an affront to God. You see, unlike pagan gods, we do not need to constantly appease our God with our performance or with our things because Jesus has already done that on the cross. Therefore, verse 34, do not be anxious, he says again, about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We don't have a lot of time to exegete this last verse, but I do want to highlight a few things. There are two things that we can learn in this last verse. Number one, anxiety is a daily struggle. You know, some of you might hear that and just go like, yeah, duh. Uh, so while there's a keen element of sin to anxiety, which I've highlighted, there's also an element of suffering. We all have anxieties. We will have anxieties. It's what we do with them that matters. So press on in faith. Press on in faith. Seek the things that are above. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Trust Jesus daily in repentant faith. And the second thing that verse 34 talks about is this, that God promises us that he will meet you in your anxiety as you fight for faith. Lamentations 3, 22 to 23 tells us, for instance, that his mercies are new every morning. So, what are some practical steps? How do we combat or how do we help someone that's struggling with anxiety? Quite simply, we do so by reorienting our priorities or lovingly walking beside someone to help them reorient. We do so by reorienting our priorities so that we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's a twofold strategy. Don't worry. Your father knows what you need and he will provide. So seek his kingdom above the desires that your anxieties are pointing to. Replace that desire with the greater one, one that cannot be taken away. For those of you who like to take notes, here's the step-by-step -step version. Okay, this is, this, is, uh, this is you in the counseling room, corporately. Step one. Ask God for courage to sit in your anxiety and avoid the temptation to merely cope with your anxiety. Ask God for the courage to sit in your anxiety, to avoid the temptation to merely cope with it or manipulate the circumstances around it. You know, we can get very, very, very good at doing this. But we are called to face things head on in faith. 
Second, step two, ask yourself the question as you sit in your anxiety, why am I feeling so anxious? Why am I feeling so anxious? But look biblically for the answer. Don't settle for answers like, that's just the way I'm made, or that I have an anxiety disorder. You may in fact have a disorder that causes your body to react in a way that amplifies normal anxiety. I get that. But at the root of anxiety is still the same question. What is it that you desire or value that you either hope for or fear will be taken away? What are you wanting? Step three, consider this desire. Consider this desire. Are you close-fisted about it or are you open-handed about it? Has that desire grown legs? Has it become treasured in your heart more than Jesus? This morning, for instance, I was anxious about the sermon on anxiety. And as I thought about this, I thought, am I treasuring what I say and my performance, my eloquent words before you, more than the glory of God and how God might speak through me? Am I fearing man more than I fear God? And so step four, put off. Paul, puts, Paul talks about this, put off and put on. Put off, that is, repent of the ascension of the desire. Sometimes those desires are right. We shouldn't repent of the desire to eat, for instance. Okay. So be careful about what you repent of. Sometimes we repent of the actual desire itself. And sometimes we repent of the lick sproutiness of that desire. Lord, I repent of my desire to be seen as successful before men. I confess that it has overruled my heart to the point where it is above what you think of me. Step five, ask yourself, how is what I desire actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ? How is what I desire actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Jesus, you have died for me. Father, you have promised me your son. You have the words of eternal life. And if you've given me your son and eternal life, what could I ask for that you will not provide? Where else would I go? Where else would I go to find hope? Finally, step six, put on, that is replace your desire with the greater desire. So Father, help me to believe what you have given by the power of your Holy Spirit. I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to humble myself before you and cast my anxieties on you. That is, these fears and desires that seem to overrule my heart, help me to cast them before you because I know that you care for me. I know that you are greater than Satan who 
puts these lies in my head. I know you are greater than my own fleshly desires, my own natural inclinations, because you have saved me by the power of your Holy Spirit. Linus van Pelt could finally drop his security blanket at the sound of good news. Fear not, the angel said, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is, is born, sorry, it, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In Jesus, in Jesus, there is indeed such a thing as Charlie Brown loves to say, good grief. We can have godly grief that produces repentance of our anxieties, knowing that there is something better. For some of you, this message will be a good reminder of the authority Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit has in your life, that you can change, that you can move forward in faith. And if that is you, may I encourage you, press on in faith. Continue in repentant faith daily. Seek first his kingdom. For some of you in this room, you identify with the anxiety, but maybe you have never experienced freedom, true freedom from it. May I invite you this morning to come to Jesus? Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You indeed can be free from your anxieties. Repent and come to faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we do repent of all the things that, that we seem to hold so dear, that seem to have such high place in our hearts, but are fickle. These things in our hearts that we value more than you, we repent of those things. Father, forgive us for holding those things so high, holding them as treasure more than you. Father, help us to see the treasures that you do provide for us in Jesus. Help us to see the glories of your cross, the glories of life in you, the glories of following you, of living a resurrected life, of living a life that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And give us faith to trust you that we may walk forward in our faith. Father, please give us grace. Give each one of my brothers and sisters here grace each day to walk in repentant faith, seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. Help us to put things in right priority. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.